important time of our worship together there, the reading, public reading of Scripture. As Paul told Timothy, do not give up the public reading of the Word. And here at Grace Bible Church, we're going to obey that and continue to obey that, uh, the public reading of God's Word. So um, just as a reminder for all of us, as we hear God's Word read, we are hearing God speak just as he did to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, to anyone else he spoke to. And sometimes we miss that because we're just reading it. Well, that's God speaking. And we can never take that for granted, that we are hearing God speak every single time we read the word together. Well, um, last week uh, I uh, kept my promise and I did a message on the biblical view of tongues. And if you weren't here last week, we should have that up on the internet now. I know we're having a little problem with our internet this past week, uh, getting things posted, but I think that's all going to be fixed, or is fixed. Am I right, Jared? Um, so that'll be up there. Also, I'm going to be putting an outline out there to help you. Maybe walk through that, look up some other scriptures that go along. With, I, 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 this is like drinking from a fire hose last week. I understand that. All right? It was, it was a lot of stuff. Um, but I'm going to put an outline out there with scriptures and those kind of things, and then... Um, I'll have Alex post that in our, um, uh, in, our, in our weekly newsletter so you can have that uh, for further study. Uh, well, this is um, uh, the second to last Sunday that I will stand before you and serve as uh, the teaching pastor here at Grace Bible Church. And so as I think about that, I don't want to think too long about it because I won't get through this message. Um, but I thought about what I got two times um, to, to preach. Uh, maybe you'll invite me back later sometimes at anniversaries or something like that. I don't know. Maybe you won't either. Um, but uh, this, um, I thought, what, what can I preach? What, what? I got two times. And I, I told you I was going to stop Acts and David Dupree on the um, uh, 12th of June. We'll pick up in Acts 21 where I left off and uh, he and some of the other elders and pastors will continue that throughout till we finish the book of Acts but um, so I, I've got I'm, I've chosen what I'm going to do I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to do next week but I will tell you what I'm going to do this week you want to know that right and it'll be kind of hard to preach it if I don't tell you but I want to ask you to open your Bibles to John chapter 3 John chapter 3 open your Bibles to John chapter 3 or your device that has your Bible on it um John 3, <clears throat> and specifically, John 3.16. That's, you heard that right, John 3.16. Anyone ever heard of this verse? Anyone? Yeah, a couple people, okay, that's what I thought. I mean, the rest of us will have to be brought up to speed here. But uh, most of us, if not all, can recite it from memory. Uh, that, that's just the reality of where we are in the church and not only in the church but in our world and, e and even if you didn't grow up in the church you, you most likely have heard this verse even if you don't have it committed to memory you kind of know what it's about so I, I'm going to pull it up here this is in, in the NESB and uh, your translation may look a little different but that's okay you may be memorizing the King James or New King James or NIV this is New American Standard and it says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Can we, can we read that together? 
Let's read this together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And it's not just popular with those of us Christians who have memorized it in whatever translation, but it's somewhat familiar to people um, in general, just in the world. And, and why is this? Well, the familiarity comes in a lot of different ways. Maybe because of guys like this. All right. Maybe you've seen this guy running around. All right. He's got a John 3.16 shirt on. I'm not sure about the rainbow wig. All right. Or guys like this get on the baseball field and they're running. The guy's got a taser behind him. I love that. Um, <clears throat> and he's going to tase the guy running with the sign, John 3.16, in the outfield somewhere. And then you got more guys like this. Uh, Tim Tebow, John 3.16, made it famous right there underneath his, his eyes. And so, so we, we see these things. And our world in general is familiar with at least the, 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 the word John and the numbers 3.16. And, and I was talking a few years ago when I preached through the gospel of John. Actually, I look back, it's been about five years um, since I actually preached this text when we were going through the Gospel of John, which is, it seems like yesterday, but it would have been over five years ago. Who, who was here five years ago going through John? Okay, there's a lot of you who weren't. How many of you remember, be honest, John 3.16, preaching through that before? Okay, my family, great, thanks. Um, <coughs> that's why I'm going to preach it again, all right? John 3.16. But I was having this discussion with a, a, a guy who's in our church over five years ago that te- as we were walking through John, he and I had gotten together for lunch, and uh, I told him, hey, this week I'm going to be preaching on John 3.16. I've never preached on that passage before. And I was just talking about how people are familiar with um, uh, John 3.16. Even people in the world, he goes, yeah, you, you won't believe this. I was just in my office here recently, and a guy came running in to um, the, my office, and, 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 he, and he says, <clears throat> I want your Bible. Give me your Bible. He's like, okay, what do you want your Bible? What do you want my Bible for? He goes, i got to know what it means. And he said, know what what means? Well, you know that, that sign they hang in the outfield at baseball games. It says John 3.16. It's in the Bible. I want to read it. Now, it's hard for us to believe that somebody didn't know what John 3.16 said. We, we, because we know what it says. And most people do. But this guy didn't know what it meant. He didn't know what it meant. He didn't even know what it said. So he had he went to come and borrow this guy's Bible at work because so, he knew he'd have a Bible at his, at his desk. Borrow his Bible, open up the Bible, and read John 3.16. You see, it's so familiar to some of us that we don't even think twice about a sign like that. We don't even think twice about seeing somebody with a shirt that says John 3.16. Oh, John 3.16. You've heard the saying, familiarity brings, breeds contempt. Familiarity brings, breeds contempt. Well, well, I've got another saying applies to John 3.16. Familiarity breeds complacency. Familiarity breeds complacency. The fact that John 3.16 has become so familiar and popular sometimes leads people to ignore it as a simple elementary truth. Even those of us who have walked with Christ. And let me promise you, yes, it is simple, but it's not elementary. It's the most profound thought to all humans in the history of our world. It's simple in the sense that there are no big words that are hard to understand. However, it's profound in the sense that when you put the meaning of these words together in context, it becomes the greatest news ever proclaimed. A pastor friend of mine calls it the highest of all human thought, 
Others have called it a miniature gospel. Martin Luther, the famous German reformer, said of John 3.16, it is a Bible in itself. And I've heard testimony after testimony of people who have come to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord because they heard John 3.16. Well, my hope this morning is that each of us would humbly come to these words in John 3.16. Uh, given to us by John, the evangelist, and ask him to make it the most exciting, ask God to make it the most exciting news we've ever heard. That's my prayer. That we wouldn't be complacent when it comes to John 3.16. That we wouldn't just, oh, ho-hum, it's John 3.16 again. So much so that if you've never embraced the truth that's taught in this verse as your own, you would embrace it fully and personally today. And if you have embraced the truth that's taught in John 3.16, my prayer is that your heart would leap with joy at its truth. And it would, you would never ever get over the truth that's taught in John 3.16. Well, as we begin to examine the, these verses, the first thing I want to do is I want us to do what we always do before we go and we examine God's Word together. I want us to pray, and I want us to ask Him to do what only He can do. This is not an intellectual exercise. What we do in the preaching of the Word is we proclaim God's Word. Is our intellect involved? Yes. But our will is involved. Our heart is involved. And God tells us without Him breaking through and enlightening our heart and our mind, without moving our will, we won't be changed. We'll walk out of here the exact same way that we came in. Just people trusting in ourselves, right? We can't trust in ourselves when it comes to understanding what John 3.16 or other, any other part of God's Word says. So let's pray. Lord, we do come to you and we ask you to do what only you can do. What we know not, teach us. What we are not, make us. And what we have not, give us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's briefly be reminded of the context here of John 3.16. Often it is not that you, it's hard to take John 3.16 out of context. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty self-sufficient even in and of itself. It's one of those verses hard to do that. But when you understand the gospel, I think we'll have a greater understanding of what John 3.16 is all about. Um, and and it's, it, it comes right after, obviously, verse 15. That is a novel idea, right? John 3, 15, 16 comes after John 3, 15, right? Boy, the first 15 verses of John 3, you have this interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus. And Nicodemus has come to Jesus, and he's, saying, and, and he's asking Jesus, you know, a bunch of questions. And Jesus sees right to his heart and understands why he's come. He wants to know how he can be made right with God. And Jesus teaches him how he can be made right with God, how he can be born from above, how he can be born again is what Jesus said. And he, and, and, and he, teach, he has this unbelievable teaching, and it goes exactly opposite to everything that Nicodemus thought in and of himself. Nicodemus thought he could do enough to be made right with God. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. There has to be, have to, there has to be something that takes place in the heart. You have to have a birth from above. You must be given a new heart in order to understand what it means to be made right with God, in order to be made right with God. And now on the heels of this, this conversation about the new birth between Jesus and Nicodemus, you have John 3.16. Now there's a transition of who's speaking here from John 3.15 to John 3.16 here. All right, so let me just go ahead. If you have a red letter edition, 
Um, I, 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 it's not inspired. I want you to know the red letters are not inspired by God. Somebody came along later and trying to help us out. These are the words of Jesus. Well, I think that it's very evident from the context that these are not the words of Jesus, John 3.16. It's actually John the Evangelist who's giving commentary on what happened in the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And there's tons of literary uh, or, or con contextual uh, things around this that show that's the truth. So John 3, 16 through 21 is John the evangelist who wrote the gospel of John giving commentary on what just happened. He does it later in chapter 3 as well. Then that verses 17 through a certain part of the, near the end of chapter is, is another first hand and then John comes along and explains what just happened and that's what's happening here. But I'm going to give you just one that points to this truth. There's a lot of them that point to this truth that this John 3.16 is John the evangelist. It's the fact that Jesus is referred to as the only begotten. Some of your translations say the one and only son in verse 16 which is a phrase Jesus never used for himself. Jesus never used that phrase for himself. Instead, Jesus often referred to himself as the Son of Man, as he does in John 3.14, two verses before this. And also, John refers to Jesus as the only begotten back in John chapter 1, verse 14. This is how John the Evangelist referred to Jesus. Jesus never referred to himself as the only begotten or the one and only Son. Now, there's other ones that I could point to. We can talk about that later. But I want us to look, as we look at John 3, 16, be reminded that John the evangelist is going to help us understand God's love in a deeper and more impactful way than we've ever known before. So in order to do that, in order to, to, to look at this marvelous scripture, I've summarized it in, in three phrases explaining God's love in John 3, 16. The first phrase is the reality of God's love. The reality of God's love. Look with me at the first part of John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Now notice that the first, that, that verse begins with the word for. For. This points back to verses 14 and 15. Which explained that God had made a provision for man's sin. By using for, John is going to explain why there's a provision for man's sin. Why is there a provision for man's sin? Someone might ask the question, why did God provide a provision or payment for mankind's sin? And John answers here in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. That's why. So why did God provide a provision for man's sin? For God so loved the world. That's why. And there's no other answer than that. That's why he did it. For God so loved the world. It's a stated fact. It's a reality. It's the reality of God's love. Now notice who's doing the loving here. It's God. For God so loved the world. Why would John's original re readers of this gospel have understood about who this God was? Who was this God? Well, John is speaking of the one true God who they would understand from Genesis chapter 1 is the one who created the universe in six days out of nothing. That's the God that's loving. And they would understand that this God was the one not only who creates life, but he sustains life. And the God who answered Job with questions that made statements about his greatness, like, Job, if you can see that up here, Job 38.4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And Job 
Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? Job 38, 12. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? That's the God that they would have understood who's doing the loving here. The omnipotent, all-powerful, creative, sustaining, loving, just, holy, righteous God of all the universe is the one who loved the world. For God so loved the world. Chris Tomlin in his song Indescribable seeks to declare the, the awesomeness of God with these words. Indescribable, uncontainable. You place the stars in the sky and you know them by name. You are amazing, God. All-powerful, untamable, awestruck, we fall to our knees as we humbly proclaim, you are amazing, God, who has told every lightning bolt where it must go, or and seen heavenly storehouses laden with snow, who imagine the sun and give source to its light, yet conceals it to bring us the coolness of night. None can fathom. That's the God who loves that's the God that when we read, for God so loved the world, that's doing the loving here. This makes John's statement that God so loved the world amazing. But think about this. This God, this holy, righteous God, calls his creation to honor him. And guess what? From the first man and woman in the history of the world, we don't honor him. And yet that same God still loves the world. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. That, that, that should send chills up and down our spine. We should be overwhelmed that it's that God who is holy and just and loving and righteous. And yet we rebel over and over again. He's the one that's doing the loving here. Now, now notice the next words. For God so loved John uses the word love throughout the gospel uh, of John to speak of the Father's love for the Son, the Son's love for the Father, Jesus' love for the disciples. It's the word that, that Jesus called his disciples to, to have between one another, to love one another, and by this they will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's the same word. Now, now notice a little word right before love in verse 16. Say it with me. So. So. He didn't, didn't just, it doesn't say for God loved the world. And that's a true statement. But this is the word, God so loved the world. Would you say every word in Scripture is important? You bet it is. And what John the Evangelist, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is trying to, to, to emphasize here is the intensity of God's love. It's not just he loved the world. He so loved the world. He really, 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 really. And if that gets annoying, you know what? We could keep on going to eternity and it would never end for us to understand the intensity of the way that God so loved the world. He so loved the world. So loved the world. Paul expresses the intensity of God's love in Ephesians 2 4, as you see up here. Ephesians 2 4. I need some help in the back, guys. Thank you. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Notice he, Paul uses his great love. It's another way of saying so loved. With the great love with which he loved us. Now notice the object of God's love. 
God so loved the, help me, the world. The world. Now, now, is this talking about the spherical matter that makes up the earth? Is that what it's talking about? No, I mean, I don't think God loved that. He created it, right? Is he, is he talking about all the continents and, and how they're, you know, the, the, the land mass and those kind of things? I mean, he created that too. And the Grand Canyon and all those things. Always amazed when I think about how God created the earth. He just, just thinking his joy. He just goes, oh, Grand Canyon. I'll just do that right there. All right. And just, just nothing for him. And yeah, he created that too. But the general understanding of the word world, it's the word cosmos or cosmos in the New Testament and in John specifically is fallen humanity and the world system that has rejected God. That's what it's talking about. You read through uh, John's gospel and you, you see that. In, in fact, 1 John 15, 18, you see that up here on the screen. John 15, 18. There we go. If the, word, or the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now, is that talking about the, 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 the substance of the earth? No. It's talking about the world system. The people who hate God, who have rejected God. Well, not only does the, world, the word world carry the understanding of those who rebel against God, but it also carries the understanding of Jews and Gentiles. Now, now the fact that God loves the nation of Israel, the, the Jews, would not, to John's original readers, nobody would go, oh, I didn't know that. Everybody knew he loved Israel. He, know, he loved the Jews. He had set them aside as a, in a special place to show his glory to the world. Everybody knows that he loved the Jews. But the thought that he would love Gentiles, oh my goodness. And that's what throughout, not only in John 3, 16, but throughout the Gospel of John, we see that God loves the Jews and the Gentiles. He loves all the nations. Goes out to not only Jews and Gentiles, but listen to this, male and female. It, it goes out to slave and free. It goes out to people from every tribe, tongue and nation that's the world that is speaking of people from all those different walks of life and different places in our world so to say that God so loved the world is a powerful and amazing statement the answer then to, to as, as to why God provided a payment for mankind's sin is because God so loved the world that's why that's why God so loved the world. Why did he love, so love the world? Well, it's certainly not because the world loved him. We ought to get a huge amen out of everybody, if we're all honest. It's not because the world loved him. That's not why God loved, loved the world. And it's not because the world did so many great things to make him love them. No, God loved the world, or so loved the world, because it was in his nature to do so. John, in his first epistle, John 4, 8, he says, God is love. It's in his nature. It's a part of who God is. And the fact that God so loved the world that hated and still hates him is a truly amazing truth. And we should never get over that. I love what D.A. Carson says about God's love for the world when he writes, God's love is to be admired not because the world is so big and includes so many people, but because the world is so bad. That's why God's love should be admired. 
So we see here in the first phrase of John 3.16 the reality of God's love. The fact that the amazing and awesome God of the universe intensely loves people of all types who do not love him. For God so loved the world. Let's look at the, the next phrase explaining God's love in John 3.16. The expression of God's love. How, how did God so love the world? Or in what manner did God express his love for the world? To this question, John answers that God expresses his love for the world in that he gave his only begotten son, or his one and only son. That's how God expresses his love to the world. Immediately we see that God's love is passive, right? It's a passive love. No, it's an act of love. He gave his only begotten son. He didn't just say he loved like many people do in our world today, like all of us have done. And we don't love, we just say we love. Love is an active verb. You can't love without doing something. That's something moving, whether our heart or our actions. And God so loved the world, he showed his love. And we see that in Romans 5, 8. You can see that up here on the screen as well. But God, I love this, demonstrates his own love in this or towards us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's love. He demonstrates. God's love is, action, is active and all true love is. God gave. The scripture clearly and overwhelmingly teaches that giving is in the very nature of God. Consider his giving. Now, you won't see this in the screen. Just listen closely. Psalm 127.2. He gives to his beloved even in his sleep. God is giving even when we're sleeping. It's amazing. And then in Psalm 136.25, who gives food to all flesh for his loving kindness is everlasting. He gives food. He gives the very things that we need to remain alive. In Proverbs 2.6, it says, for the Lord gives wisdom. The Lord gives wisdom. Any wise thought we've ever had has been given by the Lord. And we could go on and on and on. I could recite hundreds of verses in what the Lord gives. And it's impressive when we look at the gifts from God. But they all take a distant second when compared to the fact that he gave his only begotten son. It's in his nature to give. But all gifts of God are second when it comes to this. He gave his only begotten son. Now notice that, that phrase, only begotten. Your translation may say, one and only, or only son. These words are actually one word in the Greek. And it's such just a powerful word, we couldn't contain it in one word. Uh, it carries the idea of unique. Uh, this word is used to separate Jesus' relationship with the Father from any other relationship Je Jesus has. His only, his one and only, his unique son, his only begotten son. The word, this word in John, only begotten or one and only, also speaks of the uniqueness of the son's relationship with the father and that it points to the fact that he, the only son, consists of the same substance or essence of the father. They share the same nature. It's his only begotten. It's unique. No one else shares the nature of God the father except God the son and God the Holy Spirit. It's unique. Yes, the words son of God are used of others, people, others, other people and other things in Scripture. It's used of angels, Jewish people, and Christians. However, listen closely to this. Angels are sons by creation. The Jewish nation 
were sons by national election. Christians are sons of God by adoption. But Jesus is the Son of God in essence. There's a huge difference when we call Him the Son of God, the only begotten Son. He's a unique Son of God in the sense that just as God the Father is all-powerful, guess what? Jesus is all-powerful. It's different in the sense that just as God the Father is all-loving, Jesus is all-loving. It's different in the sense that God the Father is omniscient, that He knows all. Guess what? Jesus knows all. It's different in the sense that every aspect and every attribute of God the Father, Jesus the Son has as well. So God didn't just give any old gift. He didn't look over here, like I talk about a lot, we look and you're going to have a food drive, let me slide to the back and get the asparagus nobody likes in the can. All right, everybody wants fresh asparagus, but we're going to do a food drive. We're going, to, we're going to give something. Hey, we're giving, right? I mean, we could keep that for a rainy day. We're going to pull that out and give it. God didn't look at the back of the cupboard. He gave of himself. He gave his only begotten son for us. He gave the very best. When we read this, he gave his only begotten son. We've got to answer and we got to ask and answer a question. How did he give his only begotten son? Well, the context points to the fact that God gave his one and only unique son, his only begotten son, to die for sin. That's how he gave. Now, we see this when we look back. Look at verses 14 and 15 in John 3. It says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so whoever believes will in him have eternal life. John pointed back, all right, he points back, and to what Jesus had just said. And Jesus points back to the Israelites, the fact that the Israelites had rebelled and were bitten by poisonous serpents. And if you don't know that story, this is what happened. They were rebelling like normal. All right, they were rebelling. And, and so God sends poisonous serpents uh, to, to, to bite them in, 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 in judgment for their rebellion against him. And Moses, he told Moses, take a bronze all right, serpent, stick it on a pole, and lift it up. And if they look... If they trust in my provision, all right, if they trust in that, if they believe in that, I'll heal them. So he held up that serpent. And they looked and they lived. That's what happened. And it, Jesus uses this to illustrate that Jesus, the Son of Man, would also be lifted up to save people from the death that they deserved and to give them life. We also see the saving nature of God's giving Jesus to us in the end of verse 17. Look there with the, the, wor the words that say, that the world might be saved through him. Well, why did the world need to be saved? Because all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. That's why we need to be saved. We need to be rescued from the wages of our sin. In order to be saved from the penalty of sin, someone had to pay the penalty or the price. We all agree God is loving. And we all agree that. Everybody, we're just talking about for God so loved the world, but he's also just. He's a just God. He must punish sin. He must bring judgment on sin because his nature is also just. And because God is love, God made a way that the penalty of sin could be paid by the giving of his only begotten son to die to pay for our sin. So God could both be loving and just at the same time. 
This is the message of the Bible. It's proclaimed throughout the Bible. We see this in, in Isaiah 53, verses 5 through 6. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening, ch chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And then in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to become sin on our behalf. He died in our place. He took the penalty that we deserved. And we could go on and on and on reading scripture after scripture that points to this truth. God gave his son to meet the demands of his holiness and his righteousness, which men, mankind had failed to meet. So in what manner did God express his love for the world? He gave his one and only, his unique son, his begotten son, who is God in the flesh, to die in our place that we might be forgiven and be given new birth. That's how. That's the manner in which God expresses love. I, I, I love what A.W. Uh, Pink, Pink says about the importance of the expression of God's love with these words. Listen to this closely. Christ died not in order to make God love us, but because he did love his people. Calvary is the supreme demonstration of divine love. Whenever you are tempted to doubt the love of God, Christian reader, go back to Calvary. And I exhort you here this morning, if you're doubting the love of God, go back to the cross. He gave his only begotten son to die for us. Don't doubt his love ever. God so loved the world. So let's look at the last phrase here that summarizes God's love in John 3.16. The purpose of God's love. The purpose of God's love. What was God's purpose in loving the world by giving Jesus to die for the penalty, the power, and ultimately the presence of sin? John's answer would be, you should be getting on, ask a question, and we just go to John, he gives his answer, right? Here's a, here's a question. What was God's purpose? Well, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's the purpose. Notice first that phrase, shall not perish but have eternal life. But we touched on this a little bit earlier when we considered what it meant that God gave his only begotten son. Uh, there, there are those who will perish. Meaning they will receive the, the just penalty for their sin. But, and, and they'll go to a place called hell. It's a real place. Uh, they will receive God's justice. His just and righteous wrath for their sin. And there's also people that will not perish. But instead they're going to have what does it say? Eternal life or everlasting life. This phrase is in the present tense. Notice it doesn't say they will have eternal life. You see that? They have eternal life. Now in the present, not later. It's not just speaking about a length of time. It's not speaking of something that happens in the future. It's, happening about, it's talking about right now. Those who believe have, present tense, eternal life. The eternal life mentioned here in the 14 other times in the Gospel of John is way beyond a length of time. For all will live in etern for eternity in one place or the other. The eternal life spoken of here is, as one person explains, the believer's participation in the blessed, everlasting life of Christ through his or her union with him. It's our participation in the blessed, everlasting life of Christ through his or her union with him. 
So we see from the last part of this verse that, that some will perish and others will not perish but have eternal life. So who is it that is the recipient of God's expression of love in the giving of Son and therefore will not perish but have eternal life? God through John says this, whoever believes in him. Whoever believes in him. Now many people have tried to make this universalism. He got the world and they have a wrong understanding of the world, all right? They have, he loved the world so everybody's going to heaven. But it's amazing, they must leave off the rest of this. It says, some will, not, some will not perish, and some will perish. And you read the context, obviously it's not universal. Everybody doesn't go to heaven. It's not everybody gets in free kind of deal. Everybody that does get in, gets in free, but somebody else paid the price. But everybody doesn't go and spend eternity with God in heaven. It's clear from this verse and the surrounding context that the benefits of God giving Jesus to pay for the penalty of sin are not applied to every person who's ever lived. The benefits of God's love in Christ, listen to this, are conditional. The benefits of God's love in Christ are conditional. Now, to use the word conditional with the love of God seems odd, doesn't it? But that's what this passage teaches. It's true when it comes to be a, being a recipient of God's love in Christ. It's only those who what? What's it say? Those who believe. Only those who believe in Christ. So we need to ask and answer two more questions. First, what does it mean to believe in Christ? The word believe here and throughout John is an active verb. It's not a mere intellectual assent to some facts about Jesus. Okay, he was born of a virgin and he grew up and they lost him to the temple because he was there to show him. They should have known because that was his father's house. And he was amazing people with all the things he knew about the scripture. And then he grew up, he was a carpenter as well. And we know that. And then he began to teach and his public ministry began when he was about 30 years old and um, or, or 27, depending on what, when you think he actually died, 30 or 33. But later on in his adult life here, not too long, a young adult life, and he goes and he does all these miracles, and then the pe people hate him because he says he's the son of God, he makes himself equal to the God, and they hate him so much that everybody kind of gets together, the Rome, Romans, the Jews, everybody else. If we were there, we would have been saying crucify him as well. He all, he, what happens is they, they beat him up, and he walks down, the, down this road called Via Della Rosa to a hill called Golgotha, and they crucify him. And three days later, he rises again to conquer sin and death. And then he ascends to heaven, beginning of Acts, and to, at the right hand of the throne of God, and there sits. Those are all true about Jesus. But believing in him or on him to eternal life doesn't end there, just knowing the facts. You need to know those facts. But it, be, it just begins there. It doesn't end there. Saving faith or belief also includes that Christ's payment for sin is for you. It's not just, just, just out there. Oh yeah, I believe in that all happened. I'm good. No, you got to believe that he did it for you. And you got to trust in it. Saving faith finally includes not only believing that he can save you, but trusting in Christ's payment that it does save you. You see the difference? A lot of people believe that it will and it can, but they don't believe it will for them. They haven't entrusted their life to Christ. There's a true story of a skeptical physician who was, administering, who was ministering to a Christian patient. He said to his patient, I could never understand saving faith. I believe in God and I suppose I believe in Jesus Christ. I'm not conscious of any doubts. I believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and I believe in the Bible, yet I'm not saved. What's the matter with me? The Christian patient said, well, a day or two ago, I believed in you. I believe that you were a very skillful physician. I believe that you could possibly prescribe for me and heal me. But then a few days just recently, I discovered I was really sick. And so I came to you and I put myself in your hands to be healed. In other words, I trusted you. 
He said, for a time now, I've been taking some mysterious stuff out of a bottle. I don't know what it is. I don't understand it, but I'm trusting you. That's saving faith. That's believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a trust and commitment to Jesus as the one who takes away our sin. Now, the second question we need to answer, not only what, what does it mean to believe, but who does a whoever include? The word whoever means all. Arthur T. Pearson tells a story of, in one of his sermons somewhere about a man by the name of Hunt. He was a missionary to illustrate this fact about it means whoever. He had gone to the island of Tahiti in the early part of the 19th century to preach the gospel. He labored there for 15 years and didn't have one single convert, yet he continued to translate the Bible in their language. The island was characterized by adultery, sensuality, ignorance, and brutality. Finally, he completed the gospel of John, and he called together some of his friends among the islanders and the chief of the islanders and asked them to listen. He wanted to check his translation. So he began to read in John 1.1, and when he got to John 3.16, he read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. And the chief stopped him. He stepped out and he said, Would you read that again, Mr. Hunt? So he read the text again. Ah, said the chief, that may be true of you white folks, but not true of us down here in these islands. The gods have no such love for us. Well, Mr. Hunt took the word whosoever. Everyone who believes, whosoever. And he expounded that text and showed the poor chief that God's gospel meant him. And as he was expounding it and finally reached the conclusion of it, the chief said, Well, if that's the case... Your book shall be my book. Your God shall be my God. Your people shall be my people. And your heaven shall be my home. And by the end of the 19th century, there were over a million believers in the islands of Tahiti as a result of John 3.16. Whoever. Whoever. You don't have to show a list of credentials. Whoever. The vilest sinner. The young. The old. Man, woman, boy or girl. Every skin color. Every nation, poor or rich. And if I left anything else out, anyone, anyone who believes, whoever commits or entrusts their life to Jesus as the divine Savior will not perish, but have eternal life. Are you a whoever this morning? Are you a whoever? Have you believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, the purpose of God's love is in giving Jesus is the salvation of those in this world who trust in Jesus. That's the purpose. Have you realized the purposes of God's love? Or the, pur- the main purpose? Have you come to understanding that God is holy? And he demands that we be holy. And he's not grading on the curve. He says you've got to score 100 or you don't get in. And God's holiness demands that he also be just. And we're not perfect. We don't score 100. And his justice demands that our sin be paid for. We're sinful. We're not holy. And yet God sent Jesus to die in your place so you could be holy and forgiven. Let me implore you on Christ's behalf to turn from the deceitfulness of sin and trust on what Jesus did in dying for you. In what God the Father did in loving you, so loving you, so loving you, that if you would believe, you would have eternal life. Would you believe this morning? Would you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ?
and be given and have eternal life. And if you already personally embrace the truth that's contained here in John 3.16, then I want to challenge you to share it with at least one person this week. This week, one person shared John 3.16. Well, they all know it. Do they all? We had a guy in our church a few years ago had a guy run into his office. He had no idea what John 3.16 was. And if, even if they do know it, do they really know it? Do they really know John 3.16? Can you imagine what might happen if all, every single person in here shared John 3.16 with somebody this week? Hey, can I, I share something? We were talking about this in our church. And, and, and we, we just all made a commitment in our church. We're going to share John 3.16 with somebody. Can I share with you what John 3.16 says? And, oh, I know what it says. Well, what does it say? Tell me. I just want to... Hear it again. And I tell you, isn't that amazing that God loves the world that much? That he would send his son? I mean, you can't get a better setup than John 3.16. And does it hurt anybody that you share John 3.16 with them? Might it hurt them if you don't? John 3.16. Let's do it. Let's all commit together. This week, and I, what I, want, I want to hear stories. I want to, I want to, I'm, I want, I'm not going to call everybody out, okay? Don't get scared. But I want somebody to say, hey, Brian, I shared John 3.16. Or I want Danny to go to, to, to Melissa. Hey, I shared John 3.16 at work this week. This guy had never heard her. This guy, he, he heard he's a believer. I didn't even know he's a believer. Isn't that awesome? Let's hear stories about that this next week. How everybody in here shared John 3.16. How hard is that? It's not. It's the greatest news ever. It's a Bible in itself. It's the gospel contained in one verse. So with that said, let's, 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 let's say this pre precious verse again together. You guys bring that up there. Here we go. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Is that the best news you've ever heard? It'll never get better than that. Ever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the amazing truth that you so, you, the God of heaven, the, the, the omnipotent, omniscient, holy, righteous, just, loving God, you so loved with the greatest intensity that we can't even understand. You so loved us. Not because of how great we are, but in spite of how bad we are. You so loved us that you gave, you took initiative and you demonstrated your love for us. And while we were yet sinners, you sent your son to die for us. That you gave your only begotten son. Who's in the very nature of God. God the son. You gave your only begotten son. That whoever. Man, woman, boy, child. Red and yellow, black and white. Whoever. Would believe. Who would trust. Who would commit to trust in what Jesus had done for them and dying for them. Whoever believes shall not perish, shall not be separated from you forever, but would have eternal life, a relationship that is beyond our imagination with the God of this heaven. But I pray we'd never get over that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.